Have you got a favorite Bible verse? Uh, have you got a, a passage from Scripture which you have heard often enough or maybe spoken or read often enough that it actually has gotten into you? You don't even need to open up a Bible anymore to remember that verse. You could speak it aloud. One of my favorite verses in this regard is a verse that comes from the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 10, in which Christ looks at his disciples and says, I have come in order that you might have life and have it to the full. Or as another translation puts it, I have come that you might have life and have it even more abundantly. And one of the reasons why I particularly loved that verse, it became precious to me when I was in my 20s, is because it, it reminded me that the interest of God is in more than heaven. Uh, sometimes Christianity gets painted as a faith that is essentially about pie in the sky when you die. And the idea is that if we just scrimp and sacrifice and suffer enough in this life, It'll be okay because sooner or later there's going to be chocolate decadence cake forever in heaven. And the reality, of course, of our Christian faith is that we have a glorious eternity. We do have a life of no more tears and wars and suffering and pain and, 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 and alienation. That is our future as followers of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus spoke of eternal life, he was speaking about a quality of life that one would want to go on in infinite quantity that can begin today. The passion of Jesus was to have us experience life to the full, life abundant, beginning today. And so much of his teaching is aimed at guiding us into that kind of life. In fact, his... Um, his movement was called by those who first followed simply the way, the way into life. And the scriptures themselves articulate in so many different places patterns and principles and priorities and perspectives that are the secret. They're almost like the bricks in the pavement of that road, that way to a more abundant and full kind of life. John Wesley was a man who found the path to that kind of life. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of John Wesley, uh, but I will simply remind those who may not that Wesley was the founder of a Christian movement that emphasized the value not only of assembling in places of public worship like this to look into the face of God Almighty, but to gather in between those sessions in smaller uh, groups, bands he called them, of disciples. Wesley was convinced that the pressures on human beings being given, uh, put upon them by the, the, the societal forces of his time, and this was the 1700s in, in Britain, that those forces were so intense that if believers did not come together more frequently to support each other, to pray for each other, to, to encourage each other, hold each other accountable for the growth that we all want, then we would become victims of the forces of society. We would become distracted, we would lose our devotion, and we would not find our way into the life that God wanted for us. And so Wesley's movement that used this method of small group um, connection during the week became known as Methodism. Methodism. Uh, we call it small group ministry here at Christ Church. 
but the idea is much the same. And the influence of, of these bands, these small groups that were formed all across the uh, English landscape was such that it promoted a revival of the spirituality of Britain. A massive revolution in the life of, of, of our motherland uh, as, as people here. And, and that revival was more than merely spiritual because the effect of, the, of this, these bands, of these groups, was such that people became even more devoted and thoughtful about the way they were living every other aspect of the life, and it actually led to a revival of the economic life of Britain as well in the 1700s. Uh, such was the effect of, of the Methodist movement. Now, in the course of all of this, John Wesley became a massive celebrity. His books, his songwriting uh, were, were consumed everywhere across uh, the world at this particular time, uh, so much so that it netted him massive royalties. And Wesley, by the end of his journey, had become a very, very wealthy man. Even by the middle of his journey, he was an enormously affluent man. But Wesley was something like the Warren Buffett of his day. He deliberately made a choice that he was going to live far beneath the means that he had financially. In fact, he set for himself the, the, the intention of trying to live at the same level, the same budget level that he'd had during his university days. And the reason why he chose to do this was so that he, one, could be free of the burdensome pressure to maintain a big lifestyle. It can be exhausting to maintain a, a big lifestyle of dusting and upgrading and storing and sorting and, and, and purchasing more. He didn't want to have that burden in his life. And secondly, he chose to, to, to constrain himself so that he would be at liberty to help others even more generously. And, and Wesley's famous motto, which I want to call to our attention here today, was earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Where did he get those ideas? What was the birth of that particular vision of life? It won't surprise you perhaps to know that the answer is from the Holy Scriptures. And, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 and following, the Apostle Paul lays out these three principles that Wesley lived by and prospered by. He lays it out in a very helpful way. And I want to do a deep dive today into this particular text with you. And let me just give you a quick disclaimer. What I'm going to be talking about today is rudimentary in a sense. Some of you are going to think to yourself, I came to church on a beautiful memorial weekend for this. I knew this stuff. And I will say, bravo, I hope you do know this stuff. But I'm also going to be teaching it to you today because I'm afraid that we have reached a moment where, as somebody once observed, um, the restatement of the obvious is now necessary. Because in many quarters, I would suggest to you these basic principles and ways of coming at life have been lost in our time. And it may just be that somebody here will find this helpful to have this stated. And if you are somebody that knows somebody that needs this message, then I hope you'll grab a copy of it, go to our website and get a link for it, and pass it on to others who might find it beneficial. 
So the first of the important ideas that Scripture lays out, and we find in this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, is that God means us to earn energetically, to seek to earn energetically. St. Paul writes, and I quote, Now he who supplies seeds to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase, get this, your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now notice here, notice what uh, is being said and what is not being said. Uh, Paul is saying, God will supply seed to people. You can count on God to supply seed. It does not say that God will hand you the deed to a three-story farmhouse just because you have that seed. Now, you may one day have a three-story farmhouse, a very nice one at that, but that all depends on what you do with the seed, or in large measure, it depends on what you do with the seed. One of the most dangerous aspects of life today is the impression that we are constantly being given of the possibility of instant success. There's a little uh, mini-mart I stop into uh, every day, almost every day, as I'm driving to work to pick up some hard-boiled eggs for my breakfast, and I will see folks lining up at the instant success counter. You know what I'm talking about. And there are many people hoping for it, uh, hoping for some kind of instant success. It's, it's, a, it's a vision that is constantly being celebrated in, in movies and in advertising. We get this uh, myth that if I just get a job with a tech uh, com company, I will in, in, in a very short order have millions in stock options and be able to retire in the Bahamas. Or I'll start in the mailroom and I'll be pro- promoted to the boardroom in very short order as people see how talented and capable I am. This is one of the most powerful myths of our time. Of course, it happens now and then. I I was in a Southwest Airlines airplane some years back, and I sat right across from a young man who had won the $26 million California lottery. He was an actual winner. It had destroyed his family. He was divorced now. He had no relationship with his dad. The money had been a terribly corrupting influence in their lives. Uh, But he had gained instant success, in a sense. The reality, of course, is that most abundance, think about this, you know this to be true, most abundance in life comes not from sudden windfalls, but from how energetically Someone plants and tends whatever seed she or he has been given. The Apostle Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So what is this seed that we're meant to sow generously and energetically? Well, the seed is your skills, it's your insights, it's your experiences, it's your unique temperament and personality, it's your existing financial or physical resources. Your seed is all of those things which God has given you, which, if used wisely and well, will very likely grow. Will very likely grow. When I was younger, I met a 
young man that had a very, apparently, very little amount of seed. His name was Harry, who became one of my very best friends. Harry had grown up in a family that uh, had extraordinarily few uh, physical means. Uh, his mom worked in a local bagel factory. His uh, dad was a truck driver, uh, most of the time unemployed. He was uh, an alcoholic. He was a chronic gambler. Um, and, and no one in Harry's family had ever gone to college, ever. In fact, nobody ever even thought of going to college. Nobody suggested that Harry might go to college. But Harry decided that he wanted to go to college because he wanted, in a euphemistic sense, a three-story farmhouse. He wanted to, to, to elevate his life in some significant way. And so Harry worked extremely hard in school. Uh, he studied longer hours than the average student did. He took jobs after school uh, in his high school days uh, in, in order to gain more experience, to gain access to people that might become mentors. He, he would tell me how he went about this, very purposefully, sewing, tending, working at this, in the hopes of meeting people that might open doors, that might teach him new things, that might help him develop the kind of skills he did not get and couldn't find from his family of origin, Harry worked very, very hard, and Harry got into college. He did not stop at that point, continuing to sow and to tend the seed that he's been given, and so he continued to study very, very hard, and the challenge of the college he was at upped the game for him. He had to work really, really hard, and he did that. He not only uh, studied very, very hard, but he took jobs again after his study hours. He took a job in, a, in the science labs at the university, and by the time that he was a junior in college, the professors were asking Harry to help them teach undergraduates these science courses. By the time he graduated from college, and I was there the day he did, Harry had taken more academic courses than anyone else in the history of Yale University. And he had gotten a 4.0 in every one of them. And when the graduation time came, Harry walked away with every single award in the sciences. We got so tired of hearing his name called out <laughs> as, as he paraded yet again and again across the stage to collect the awards. And he didn't stop there. He went on and took a Fulbright Fellowship studying uh, cancer uh, and its cure, potential cures. Uh, he went on and went to medical school. He got a PhD on top of that. Harry did absolutely amazing things with the seed that God gave him. He earned, he worked energetically at it, and as a result, he made more than a few bagels with his seed. I think this is something, stories like Harry are something of why this whole college admissions scandal got under our skin, isn't it? There's something in us that just is bugged by the notion that, 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 that there can be these people out there who succeed actually in getting an ivy-covered farmhouse for their kids before those kids have actually even truly learned to work with the seed even develop the kind of character that would tell them what to do with that education. This is what got under our skin, I think. 
It seemed like it was stealing a place from kids and families that would work hard and had worked hard from kids like a Harry. When you live in a shiny object society, it's really easy for this to happen. Uh, we just should not be surprised by the college admission scandal. We should be surprised that it hadn't been uncovered earlier, that it hasn't happened a lot more. It probably actually has happened a lot more. Because when you live in this kind of a society, it's just so easy to think that you can't live without all of this stuff, without all of these degrees, without all of these accoutrements. It's easy to start thinking we should have them, that we're actually entitled to have them. And we want them handed to us in finished form, if at all possible. We, we'd like it given to us if we can get it. Some uh, credit card companies and airlines promise rapid rewards, but that is not how the Bible teaches us that life usually works. It's important that we say that to the younger ones in our midst, remember it for ourselves. Life doesn't work this way normally. Thankfully, of course, God does shower us with amazing grace, with remarkable common graces when we haven't worked for them. The nature of life is that it is ruled over by a God who does delight in surprising us at times with things we could never have earned, we could have never brought to ourselves. And yet in the main, for the most part, it's why we call it grace, it's why it is so amazing when it comes, in the main, we tend to reap what we sow. We basically tend to reap what we sow. And we are meant, this is the first big principle, we are meant to exert effort. We are meant to work hard, to put in long hours, to get up when it's, when we're, when it's been difficult and try again, even when we fail. We are meant to exert effort to earn all that we can, to develop all that we can with the seed that we have been given. Okay, we got that idea? That's the first big one. Secondly, we ought to save prudently. We ought to earn energetically and save prudently is the teaching of the scriptures. Listen again to these words from the Bible. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Many years ago, as I think I've shared on at least one other occasion, I worked on a farm for a summer. I, it was a place called Muscoot Farm in Katona, New York. And it was owned by the county of Westchester. It was used primarily as a, um, as a, a laboratory, in a sense, for teaching young people how agriculture works. And so groups of school kids during the year and, and lots during the summer, uh, camp, camps would come and they would learn about how all the affairs and activities of the farm. And I, my job was to actually do the menial work of the farm. I would spend hours digging donkey dung out of stalls and, uh, and, and uh, helping with the tomatoes in the field and root roofing barns and all kinds of tasks. But one of my favorite jobs when I was let to, allowed to do it was to be a tour guide for these kids. And one of the things the kids most loved was to go into the granary. We had this big crib in which we uh, took a lot of the, uh, effectively the seed corn and stored it up and we would let the kids run their fingers through this. If they could have, they would have rolled in it. 
They would have loved to have done that. And I remember how the kids were curious about what this was for. Do you eat this, they said. Can we eat this? And we would let them eat a, a, a kernel or two of the corn if they felt like chewing on, the, on them. And we said, no, we don't eat this. We, we're going to plant this. We're going to return this to the ground. Well, 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 why is that? Well, because if we eat up all that we've taken in, there won't be any harvest next year. There won't be enough for next year. Now, that may seem an obvious thing to those who have grown up in an agricultural community, but it bears underlining in a technological society. We cannot consume everything we harvest and expect it to go well for us over the longer haul. And this has become a problem in America today. Uh, this is a really serious problem, not just for individuals, but for our society today. Because to support the consumer lifestyle that many of us want, keep in mind, we live, as I said two weeks ago, in, in the greatest idolatry-generating engine ever invented. We are being uh, constantly convinced that those are needs when they're just wants, they're planted wants. Uh, and, and to live in a, in a consumer society like this, it's estimated that the average household today spends almost all of what it brings in and more. In 1975, it wasn't quite this way. In 1975, the average American saved about 17% of his or her income. Almost 20% of his income was stored away. Uh, put in that corn crib, as it were. In the 1980s, you remember those days of excitement, some of you, or most of you are too young to remember it. Let me just describe it to you. In the 80s, uh, the, 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 the years of Wall Street excess, the savings rate dropped from 17% down to 7%, and today it's maybe around 3%. Whereas in China, it's 30%. Uh, it's 30% of income is being put away in savings. I think we need to become more like Warren Buffett. I, I think we need to become more like John Wesley in this regard and say no more often to the lure of the shiny objects. We need to be putting more of our income away for rainy days or for retirement, and we should not expect God or the government to bail us out miraculously. We aren't going to be able to elect a politician that will fix this for us. This is something we're going to have to start to do for ourselves in a deeper way, and it's going to have to become a movement in American society if we're not to overburden the future generations. The Bible makes it clear that we should expect there to be periods of famine in life. There will be times of feasting, but we should count on the fact that there are going to come moments of famine. Jesus declared in his Sermon on the Mount, as you may recall, that there's no possibility of building the house of your life in a place where there are not storms. Everybody's going to face some unexpected storm. The notion that there will always be a job, that there will always be a, uh, the health the physical health that we need to work at a job, or that there will always be this ascending economy that will take us ever upward, this view is absolutely inconsistent with a biblical worldview. And a biblical worldview is a reality worldview. 
It's looking at the reality. We cannot assume future income, which is why saving is so critically important. The writer of Hebrews, or rather of Proverbs, puts it like this. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. But fools gulp theirs down. And the definition, by the way, of the word fool in the Bible is someone who does not live in alignment with reality. They may have a high IQ, but they're not living in alignment with reality. So this is a crucial biblical principle, and I'm sorry to be hammering it so hard. It just seems like, again, the restatement of the obvious is needed. During cycles of plenty, we need to be putting things away, at least something away, for cycles of scarcity. Um, We see a colorful example of this, of course, in the Old Testament story of Joseph, who instructed Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to store up grain during a boom time. He he managed to get the ear of Pharaoh and to convince him that that actually the dreams he was having was God's uh, reminder to him that there was going to come a tough time and he should get ready now in the boom time for those tough times. And as a result, as you know, Egypt was able to not only feed its own people, but it was able to serve as a granary that kept many, many others from around the world from starving when the seven years of famine came. So the simple lesson for us, the takeaway, I guess, is we have to live beneath our means. We are meant to live beneath our means, to spend less than we earn. So get out of debt. Get out of the consumer debt. I know we've got investment debt. You've you've invested in a house. We've invested in in a church. That's a different kind of debt. Get out of the consumer debt, the shiny object kind of debt, as soon as you can. If you don't know how to do that, that's okay. You're not alone. A lot of us struggle to even figure out where do we begin. That's why we offer Financial Peace University here. It's an amazing uh, training program that will help you figure out a plan. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt have been wiped away by the people who've attended this class here in this church. If you're not already doing so, move towards the day when you're putting money away, more of it away in a reserve fund. Stock some away for sure regularly in a 401k. If your employer offers a matching program for retirement savings, it's crazy not to take advantage of that. You must take advantage of that, full advantage. As Proverbs 13 and verse 11 says, whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Uh, It's amazing to look back and see how the seed we put away grew uh, after the years go by. It is also, however, important to stress that the purpose of earning energetically and saving prudently isn't just to have more and more stuff. One of Christ's most famous parables is the story of a man who was extremely good at, at sowing the seed and at reaping the harvest and at storing up the produce In fact, in the parable, the man has to keep building bigger and bigger barns to store up all of the produce that he'd collected. You may remember this story. Until one night, God comes to him and said, now I'm demanding your life, and what's going to become of all that you've stored up for yourself? The implication here is that there's, there's a third movement 
when it comes to the managing of resources. We want to earn energetically. We want to save prudently. But the ultimate goal is so that we'll be in a position to give generously. We're not meant to be like that kid who scores pillowcases full of of candy at Halloween. You know this kid. Maybe some of you were those kids. And then with all the pillowcases, shoves it underneath the bed, and it just rots there. We're not meant to be like that. That would be a modern-day example of the bigger barns problem. The last part of our text for today casts this vision for us. And I quote, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And then here's the important part. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. One of my earliest mentors in life was a, another man named Harry. Uh, and I wish you'd known him. His name was Harry Hacken. He was a Dutchman. He uh, was from Western Michigan. He went to Hope College. He migrated out to San Diego, Southern California, where I had the opportunity to meet him. And every Tuesday for about six years, Harry and I had breakfast. And I just mined Harry's knowledge of life because he was one of those really wise ones. Harry had been, like the first Harry I described, an incredibly good investor with the seed that he had. He'd worked very hard through the course of his life. He built up a business. It was a construction business. Business did extremely well. And then at a point when a lot of people with that kind of means would have focused mainly on lowering their handicap Uh, On the grandkids, on sitting in the shade, sipping cool drinks, Harry made a very different kind of decision. Harry took a a very low-paying job with uh, a Christian denomination, the Reformed Church of America, and he became the national director of stewardship for that denomination. And he traveled all over the country consulting with churches and talking about the beautiful pattern God had sown into creation around the handling of resources. And, and Harry, I'll never forget this, once said this to me, and, I will, and, I, and every time I even think of him, I picture his face as he's describing this. He says, isn't it wonderful, Dan, that God has designed a system that allows us to play a part in his life-changing work in the lives of other people. I mean, God could have just done it, but he lets us play a part, he said, in this life-changing work. And the sparkle of joy and the illumination on his face told me he knew something about generosity that I needed to learn more about. And I will tell you many, many years later, I know you're right, Harry. I've seen it. I get it now. I understand that that we're losing, missing out on one of the greatest opportunities for joy because we're not in a position to be generous. I hope that some of what I'm saying to you here today feels like it is the path to life 
and not me just dunning you or scolding or challenging you because it really is not intended to come from that particular heart. I was moved many, many years ago by the, um, the observation of the famous uh, psychologist Eric Fromm, who after talking with hundreds of people and conducting massive studies on human health and well-being, said this, I have become convinced that the difference between the neurotic and the happy kind of life is the difference between get and give. That people whose heart is, is fundamentally tilted towards getting experience a very different kind of life than those whose heart is fundamentally tuned towards giving. And I have found this to be true in my own experience, in my own life. God himself is the healthiest being in the universe. He is the most joyful being in the universe in no small part because at the core, the heart of God is about giving. For God so loved the world, another one of those memory verses, that he gave. And he gave and he gave and he gave. If we follow the example of Christ, who poured out his life upon a cross for us all, then we know that our lives are also meant not to be containers, but conduits. Not to become reservoirs, but rivers. This, this pathway is not a, a path to depletion. It's a pathway to completion is what it really is. Giving in response to God and the way he gives builds up our spiritual muscle. It, it, it shapes our character. It makes us amazing kinds of people over time. So let me just say in closing that I, I've been hammering all of this today because I think we have this way of just drifting along in life. We have this way of just putting one foot in front of the other, just paying the next bill, just going from week to week and month to month. And I'm saying, don't let that happen with your finances. Don't. Get a plan. Develop a vision. Teach God's view of, you've got this down. Teach this view to other people, especially younger ones within your sphere of influence. When our boys were uh, very young, Amy and I uh, set up on their bureau in their bedroom three plastic cups. And the first one was a, a red cup, and it was marked with a little white label, give. And we told our boys that, that, that every time they got a gift for their uh, for cash from the, for their birthday or they earned something for, for a chore that they had done that they should put 10% into that cup. And that that should be the first priority because God calls us to make generosity our first priority in life. In fact, the, the word tithe, as you probably know, literally means 10%. It means set aside 10% first for this purpose. We also put a yellow plastic cup on their bureau, and that one was marked save, and we instructed them that they should take 10 cents of every dollar, and they should put that away in that cup because there would come a day when they would really be glad they had that resource. 
And then we had a third cup, and it was the green cup. It was marked spend. We encouraged them to put the remaining 80% in there, and we never had to tell them what to do with that. They always had ideas. I wish we had done that even longer with them. I wish we had kept that up even more with them. I'm encouraged. I talked on the phone a month ago to one of them. He's still doing it. He's actually made decisions about where he's going to live, how much he's going to spend on where he lives, so that he can make sure that that 80-10-10 or that 10-10-80 pattern keeps going. I'm glad that Amy and me, for us, that this pattern has been a part of our marriage over the course of our lives, that we've grown to save even more than 10, that we've grown to live on even less than 80, to be in a place where we can experience something of the joy. How about you? What has been your pattern in life? And much more importantly, what's your plan? What's your plan going ahead? If you remember nothing else I've said today, this is the, the bottom line. Try the Wesley Buffett plan. Okay? Earn all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. For I have come, says Jesus, that you might have life and others through you life and have it to the full. Would you please pray with me? Our loving Lord, we pray that you will give us the inspiration and the courage to keep taking steps of deepening devotion, of devotion to you and to your priorities, to your way of living that lead us away from the distractions and further into life that is truly life, life that is abundant life. For this we pray. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.